you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to open to Isaiah chapter 28. We're gonna continue our study in Isaiah. We have finished two major sections, sections chapters one through 12, dealing with Judah and Israel. Isaiah is confronting them in the reality of their sin and yet giving them a great gospel hope for the promises of Emmanuel yet to come. In Isaiah 13 out to Isaiah 27 and even continuing on, Isaiah expands his vision for God's gospel goal in the world to include not just Judah and not just Israel, but all nations. And he does this both by speaking woes, oracles of judgment against them, and yet time and again offers a message of mercy and of salvation through judgment, because that's the way that God works. This morning we're gonna be starting a brand new section in Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah 28, going all the way through chapter 39, and we get a lot more woes. And yet all of these are setting us up for arguably the most glorious exposition of the gospel in all of the Bible, beginning in Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah 66. Some have said, I think rightly so, that if you can understand the prophet of Isaiah, then you can understand your entire Bible. And I think that's right. And so we want to move slowly through it so that we might better know who God is, that we might more faithfully trust Him and obey Him, and that our trust in His work through His servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, would be strengthened and deepened until He calls us home or returns again. This morning we're thinking about the topic of worship. It's a topic that Christians have no lack of opinions on. Some have talked about the worship wars of the last 20 years. Should we do traditional? Should we do contemporary? Should we sing hymns or should we sing more maybe fast-paced songs? Should we do instruments or not? Should we have lights up or lights down? Should we do all of those things? And while I think there's some profitability in some of those conversations, at the heart of that worship war is a fundamental misunderstanding of what worship is. Worship is not ultimately inactivity that we do, though it is. It is ultimately a posture that we assume. And it's a posture that we assume, not in our own strength or according to our own wisdom, it is a posture that can only be assumed by God's grace. Like one who has a severe deformity in their spine and has it all in an instant straightened out. That is what God's grace does to us in Christ. That insofar as the whole Bible is essentially the story of two Adams, a first Adam and a second Adam, so also the whole Bible is the story of two kinds of worshipers. 
of false worship and of true worship. Of the worship of things in this world, even good things, that are exalted and raised to the level of ultimate things. False worship. Or of those who have come to treasure Christ above all. Of those who understand that the goal of true worship is the glory of God, the delighting of him as our crown of glory, that he is, as Isaiah will say, the diadem of beauty. This is the big idea. The handful of verses that we're looking at this morning. That the goal of the church is true worship. And the goal of true worship is the glory of God. The goal of our church is true worship, and the goal of true worship is the glory of God. And I say this to make clear that the goal of true worship is not to grow the church. It's not to provide emotional experiences. True worship is always ultimately a response to the revelation of God to himself and reverses and terminates back in God as the object of our hope and our faith. That is true worship. And that is what Isaiah is going to be promising that God will do in his people. As you may notice in verse 5, in that Day. Oh, we've seen that phrase come up so many times, haven't we? In that day, for all of the darkness and all of the judgments, Isaiah continues to prove to us, as we just sang, that the darkness will not hold out the light. It continues to puncture and shine more and more through the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Lord shines him and his glory into our hearts. So I want to consider this with you for the next few moments this morning, that the goal of the church is true worship, and the goal of true worship is the glory of God. Read along with me, Isaiah 28, beginning in verse 1. Oh, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong. Like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley, it will be like a first ripe fig before the summer when someone sees it. He swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. And a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. And strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. This is the word of the Lord. May he sanctify us. 
by his truth, his word is truth. Let me just summarize where we've been over our last couple weeks in Isaiah that is in chapter 27. At the beginning of the chapter, that is chapter 27, we see Messiah slaying the fleeing and the twisted serpent. And then after this serpent has been destroyed by Messiah, we read that God in verse two will plant a pleasant and a wine producing vineyard. And that vineyard, as we learned, is the church. And into that vineyard will the surviving remnant of Jacob fill the whole world with fruit. But the question becomes, how does a little people in a little strip of land in the Middle East end up filling the whole world with fruit? Well, we learned last time that they'll fill the whole world with fruit because the whole world is where God in his discipline will scatter them. That despite Israel's covenant breaking disobedience, God will not strike them as he has the nations, but he will scatter them and he'll scatter them in order that he might save them. Oh, that's what we saw up in verse eight, that measure by measure, you contended with them and removed them. Why? Verse nine, therefore, you might atone for their sin and remove their sin, that they might dash away all of the idols among the nations that they've worshiped. God will convert them and transform them. And in verses 12 and 13, all of God's elect from Israel who are lost and driven out will come and worship the Lord. This is the concluding vision of this whole previous section of Isaiah. In chapter 24, we saw the Lord of hosts reigning on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And at the end of verse, chapter 27 rather, we see all those whom he saves according to the glory of his electing grace coming and worshiping the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. He is reigning on Zion and all those who are lost are coming to worship at Zion. That is the glorious gospel promise of Isaiah. And what Isaiah is describing is nothing less than spiritual revival. And this idea of revival is what should be imprinted on our minds as we transition from this last section of Isaiah, chapter 27, to chapter 28. Of course, as evangelical Christians, we have a lot to say about revival, don't we? As a church that would consider ourselves Baptist, our Baptist friends have a lot of ideas about revival. But even in these things, as with all things, we need to submit and subordinate our understandings of these things to God's word and God's ideas. As we observed over the last few weeks, revival is not a work of God that is somehow separate from his ordinary work. No, revival is simply an expansion of God's ordinary work through the gospel in the world. Only rather than picking up just one or two branches at a time, revival is picking up a bunch of branches at a time. But all of it is through the same ordinary means that is the proclamation of his gospel accompanied in the power of his Holy Spirit. Both in the Bible and throughout the history of the church, true revival is 
And the way that Isaiah is talking about here and as we've seen in recent weeks is marked by a genuine preaching of the word of God. A genuine sense of repentance and of our need for God's grace. A deepened appreciation for the holiness and the majesty of God and of the sufficiency of Christ as the only one who can rescue us from his wrath. This means that spiritual revival, the kind of revival that perhaps many of us have prayed for in our own church, in our own city, and in our own land, that it is ultimately a work of God and not a work of man. It's not something that we produce in our power, but it's something that we receive in God's providence. It's not helped by a slick program, and it's not marked by packed out stadiums, and it's certainly not engineered by emotionally manipulative techniques. That is not revival. That is revivalism, but that is not revival. Revival is the work of the Holy Spirit in using the faithful proclamation of the gospel to produce genuine conversion and lasting transformation. This means that revival is not something that we can just put on the calendar in the future. It's not an event that we plan. It's something that you and I can only discern as we look back and we recognize the mysterious work of God's hand through the lens of God's word. Chapter 27 ends with the reigning Christ reviving worshipers for himself. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul, as we saw a couple weeks ago, this is exactly what he says that God is doing right now in these last days between Christ's first and second comings. In fact, this is the significance of the holy mountain of Jerusalem at the end of verse 13. This is probably gonna be the longest introduction and building of context that you've received, but I hope it's helpful because we need it to understand the verses that follow. Just considering this idea in verse 13 of the Lord on his holy mountain in Jerusalem is this, that when God gathers his holy people to gather at Jerusalem, what that means is that God's people will be dwelling with God and God will dwell with his people. He will be their God and they will be his people. That's what it ultimately means. And so you may remember when Israel was set to enter the promised land, God said in Deuteronomy 12, 11, that he would set up a place for his name to dwell. That place would ultimately be in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, well, that's where the temple would ultimately replace the tabernacle as the place in which God dwelled personally with his people. But God dwelling with his people in his place, oh, that has always been the goal of God since the garden. That he would dwell among his people and his people would dwell with him. That he would, so to speak, in the words of Genesis 3, walk with us in the cool of the garden. That's not to say that God has legs. He doesn't. He's spirit. It's just to say that there's intimate communion between man and God such that we know him and he knows us. He is our God and we are his people. He is dwelling with us and we dwell with him. This has always been God's goal. This is what we see in the Old Testament. 
And it's what we see a thousand years later when Jesus stood in the temple in Jerusalem and promised that if they destroyed that temple, he would raise it again in three days. Of course, they were all bent out of shape about that because they didn't understand that he wasn't talking about the pile of stone that they were standing on. He was talking about his own body. Jesus was saying, I'm the temple. And of course, he was foreshadowing his own death and his resurrection after three days. Even after Jesus, however, descended or ascended rather bodily to the Father, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that the body of Christ is still here and the body of Christ is still the temple of God. He says to the church, you, plural, y'all are the temple of God. And God dwells in you. What was fulfilled in the body of Christ during his earthly ministry, what Paul's saying, is that is now being perpetuated in the body of Christ that is his church. And as God's temple, we don't need to go to Zion to dwell with God. God is dwelling with his church. He is dwelling with us because in Christ, we are Zion. Do you get that? Zion isn't ultimately out there somewhere geographically. Zion is a spiritual and a theological reality in Christ. And at the end of the age when Christ returns, oh, this temple building project that was inaugurated at his first coming will be consummated and the church, us, y'all, are described in that day as a new Jerusalem coming down from the sky. And the new Jerusalem is described in Revelation 21 in temple imagery. That we in that day will be clothed in gemstones, the same precious stones that lined Aaron's priestly breastplate and filled the temple garden of Eden in Genesis 2. And what that means is that the church no longer needs a priest to mediate God's presence. That in that day, the church is a priesthood who enjoys full and immediate access to the presence of God and the glory of God. And God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him as his people and we will see the face of the lamb and his name will be on our foreheads like phylacteries on old covenant priests. He will be our boast and our crown is the idea And so at the end of chapter 27 in verse 13, when Isaiah saw God's elect coming to worship in Zion in Jerusalem, this is the reality that he foresaw. And we as God's church, we are right now living in between the inauguration and the consummation of that reality as God gleans worshipers one by one by his gospel in the world. And that's what we get to be a part of. Whoa, that's pretty amazing. To my non-Christian friend, I would just ask you this morning, do you think of yourself as a worshiper? You realize all of us are worshipers. It's not something that any of us can turn off. 
All of us ultimately raise things up for the building of our own security and identity, maybe little substitute saviors, so to speak, be it money, be it our intellect or job, be it relationships in which we find, or at least attempt to find, ultimate fulfillment. And yet how many times, friend, time and again have those things let you down and proven to be insufficient saviors? How many times have those things left you empty and unwhole? How many times have those things inflicted wounds and have not delivered on their promises? Friend, all of us are worshipers. We were created for worship. It's like a hose coming from your heart that you cannot turn off and it's always spraying in some direction. So the question that I would pose to you, friend, and that I would hope that you would listen to closely over the next few moments is, are you a true worshiper or are you a false worshiper? Are you worshiping in a way that is designed by God or are you worshiping in a way that would be condemned by God? Is God your crown or is something else your crown? Is Jesus Christ your boast or is something else your boast? And I would tell you this morning that every single person sitting in this room can name a time when all kinds of things were boasts in our life that were not Jesus Christ. You realize, friend, the reason that God sent his son Jesus to live a life of perfect obedience to the law and the reason that God would have him die in the place of sinners on a cross and the reason that God would raise him in power from the dead to defeat sin and death once and for all is so that false worshipers like you and like me might be brought to himself as true worshipers through Christ. That our sins, all of them would be forgiven, atoned for, by this true savior and that we would forsake once and for all every substitute savior. Oh friend, hear me. If you trust in Christ, he will not wound you without leaving you more whole than you were to begin with. He will not let you go and he will not disappoint you. He might undermine some of your expectations, but those expectations will, according to his grace, be utterly reworked and reoriented around the nature of his person. He is worthy of living for. And friend, trust me, when you stand before him in that day, you will hope that he is one worth dying for. For only in him may you have eternal life. Friend, don't trust in those substitute saviors Anymore. Don't give them your worship or serve them. Trust in Christ alone. Well, this vision of worship, which all of us are, in chapter 27, that needs to stick in our minds and it needs to ring in our ears if we are going to understand chapter 28 because chapter 28 is all about worship. In this chapter, we're gonna see three sets of contrasts. We're going to see two crowns, two words, and two ways. 
Today in verses one through six, we're gonna consider two contrasting crowns. Next week in verses seven through 22, we're gonna consider two contrasting words. And that'll be a lot of fun because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 quotes verse 11 to explain the purpose of tongues. So we should have a good time next week together. And then in verses 23 through the end of the chapter, we're gonna consider two contrasting ways. And all of this has to do with the nature of true worship, that worship which is fueled by God and finds itself terminating in God. But today, for the remaining few minutes, we're gonna look at the first six verses. And we're gonna consider two contrasting crowns. In verses one through four, we'll consider the trampled crown of the proud And then in verses five and six, we'll consider the glorious crown of the redeemed. We'll see the trampled crown of the proud and in verses five and six, we'll consider the glorious crown of the redeemed. Follow along with me, verse one. Oh, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. The fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. You may have noticed in our first reading that that mention of a crown in verse one is repeated time and again. It's repeated in verse three, this proud crown, and then we see a different kind of crown mentioned in verse five. These six verses are all about two contrasting crowns. And in verse one, we see that Isaiah pronounces a woe against Ephraim. If your Bible at the very beginning of verse one says, ah, it really captures exactly what Isaiah is saying. The word there is the same word for woe. Woe is you. It's the same kind of sense that Jesus gave when he was pronouncing his woes against the Pharisees. You're in big, big trouble. Woe, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Samaria is the capital of Israel's northern kingdom, that is Ephraim and its leaders. The kingdom is filled with pride and with drunkenness. And Isaiah is looking up at Samaria in the north from Judah and Jerusalem in the south because that's where he does his ministry. And he's using them as an object lesson in his preaching to Judah as he's done time and again. Don't be like the northern kingdom. You're gonna see where this leads them when Assyria comes in and if you don't repent, the same fate is waiting for you, Jerusalem. Generations earlier, after King Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms and so that's where I'm getting southern and northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, having split from the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, where is the city that we've already noted God had appointed for the right and appropriate worship of the nation. No, the northern kingdom abandoned Jerusalem and abandoned the line of David. And if this afternoon you wanna take about 45 minutes to an hour and read through 2 Kings, you'll see that nearly every single king in the northern kingdom was a wicked king. So there was no truth in Ephraim. There was no light. They were religiously apostate and they had spiraled into immorality and idol worship. And the sad irony is that Israel was once a great nation. 
that between Saul and David and David's son Solomon, who reigned a total of about 120 years, Israel was filled with glorious beauty. It's what many people call the golden age of Israel. But no nation remains glorious forever. It's a truth we should keep in mind when thinking about our own nation. And that truth is especially true for nations brought into covenant with God who break covenant with God as Israel had done. And so this once glorious crown of glory has now been replaced by a crown of proud drunkards. It's once glorious beauty is now, Isaiah says in verse one, a fading flower. And the worst part is, is they don't even seem to be able to see it in themselves. The nation has grown numb to everything going on around them. It's like they're in sleeping pills because as long as they have enough wine, then they think they're doing okay when in fact they're not doing okay. In fact, we read that they were becoming, quote, overcome by wine. The sense of that word overcome is that they're literally being broken down and bludgeoned by their sin. And not only can they not see it, but they actually seem to be enjoying it. Now, I think that Isaiah, when he talks about drunkenness, is actually talking about drunkenness. That you had a nation of alcoholics. And yet, that particular sin is ultimately driven by and motivated by hearts that refuse to acknowledge and submit to the one true Lord. It seeks, even in the bottle, A God that will comfort, a God that will ease, a God that will bring joy, though always temporary. Because as soon as one bottle's empty, another one needs to be opened, doesn't it? It's a pitiful substitute savior, and yet it is one that they've given themselves to. And Isaiah recognizes this ultimately as the downfall. They are acting and living without any kind of acknowledgement of God whatsoever. The tragedy of verse one is that what God gave to Israel in grace ultimately became a source of pride for them to abuse for the sake of sin. See, everything in the northern kingdom that made their land fertile and rich, everything in the northern kingdom that caused their their fields to grow and their wine to overflow. All of it came from the hand of their covenant-keeping God. But rather than give thanks to God for these gifts and use it in a way to his glory, and whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, no, they turn these gifts into gods. And they become proud and arrogant. Brothers and sisters, this is the nature of fallen man, and this was our nature apart from the grace of Christ. That God bestows common grace and we grow proud and we abuse it for our own glory and not for God's. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, isn't it? That though they know God, they don't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. Did you catch what was right in the middle of that? They know him, but they don't honor him and they don't give thanks. One mark of spiritual degeneracy, as we mentioned earlier in our gathering, is thanklessness. They love getting gifts from God, but they refuse to give thanks to God. They're like spoiled kids at Christmas. 
who love receiving and opening all of their gifts, but they never say thank you. They think that everything under the tree is theirs by right. And they grumble and complain about the things they have not received that did not appear under the tree. Proud hearts never say thank you. Conversely, humble hearts that have been awakened by God's grace in Christ give thanks always. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. But I want you to notice in verses 2 through 4 that God will not leave this unnoticed. You cannot take the grace of God for granted and you cannot abuse the gifts of God and think that God won't notice and that he won't care and that he won't act. God has a holy hostility to proud crowns because God cannot share his glory with anyone else. If God didn't love his glory more than anything else, then that would make God an idolater because nothing is more glorious than God. God must be about his own glory over and above everything. Simply put, God is not good if God does not love his glory above all. But indeed, God is good. And he is good precisely to us because he loves his glory above all. That is ultimately what motivates God's response in the following verses. Look at verse two. Behold, the Lord has, done, has one who is mighty and strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he casts down to the earth with his hand. Uh, we've seen this theme over and over in Isaiah, especially back in chapter 10, you may recall. Isaiah has, or Israel rather, has broken covenant with God and God is gonna use the Assyrians as a rod of discipline against his people. And they are gonna come like a storm of hail and like overflowing waters. Waters that he tells Judah and Jerusalem are gonna fill up all the way to the neck and the Lord's discipline is gonna stop just short of you drowning to death. Some years ago, one of my aunts was at an outdoor festival when she was caught in a fierce hailstorm that left her with big bruises down her back. There was no place for her to hide from the hail. And Isaiah is saying, that is what the Lord's discipline will be like. The Assyrians will likewise be like a great tsunami crashing over the city. There will be no mercy. You will not be able to outrun it and there will be no holding on for dear life. But notice at the end of verse two that ultimately what's gonna go down in the Northern Kingdom is not a political issue. Assyria is not ultimately in control because Israel's main problem isn't political. Israel's main problem is spiritual and theological. Therefore, it's God who casts down the storm with his hand. You see that at the end of verse two? Behold the Lord, he casts down to the earth. A storm of hail, a destroying tempest, and mighty overflowing waters. 
In verse three, the proud crown of verse one will be trodden underfoot like a weed. God sees this fading flower and notice at the beginning of verse four, he doesn't nurse it to health, but he smashes it. It reminds me of a time when my older kids were marveling at an insect on the driveway. And I can't remember whether it was Karis or Eliana, one of the, one of the younger ones. They're marveling at this insect and this insect is, you know, barely making it and none of them really want to touch it and they're not, but they're full of compassion for it and, and little Eliana or maybe his little Karis at the time comes up and just goes, <laughs> right, oh yeah, the bug! And what Isaiah is saying is that that's the way that I'm going to treat Israel. I'm not, I'm done nursing them back to health. I've sent them prophet after prophet and they did not listen. I have redeemed them from slavery to Egypt. I gave them my law and yet they would not obey. They continue to turn to false gods and they refuse to obey me. I'm done. I'm going to trample them underfoot. I will not nurse this flower back to health. I'm going to crush it. And then notice in the second half of verse four that Isaiah switches metaphors in the second half of the verse. And there he compares Ephraim to a fig that's ripe for the picking. It's like when we first moved into our house, we had a fig tree in our backyard. And as soon as those green figs showed a hint of red, oh, my daughters would pull them off and start popping them in their mouths. Israel will be like those figs. The Assyrians are going to see the almost ripe fig, this fig that does not get to grow up to full ripeness because that's a sign ultimately of blessing in the Old Testament, that just shy of experiencing blessing from God, the Assyrians are going to pull them off the vine and pop them in their mouth. That's the image that they're giving. These are harrowing verses. They give us a glimpse into how God thinks about sin, of God's opinion toward proud crowns, of what God thinks about all of those things in our lives that we would boast about that are not ultimately a boasting in Christ and that he cannot share his glory. And so I would ask you, brothers and sisters, what are you most proud of? What are the good gifts in your own life that you might be tempted to use and abuse in your pride? Might it be a relationship, marriage, or kids? Finding all of your identity and worth on how they are, the strength of your marriage, or the kind of husband or wife that you have, or the obedience of your children and murder Kroger down the street? Might it be your own job, your upward mobility, your ability to earn? Might it be in a certain political party or a certain candidate or your own physical health? All the things that Cliff prayed for and confessed on our behalf earlier today. What are you most proud of and what are the good gifts in your own life that you're tempted to use and abuse in your pride? This isn't just an application for grown-ups. 
If you're a parent here, this is something that we need to be telling our own children all the time. Much like your children, my children are a really talented crew. And they do a lot of things at their age much better than I could ever do when I was their age. But our children, like your children, need to be reminded that the only reason that they can do whatever it is that they do is because God made them that way. And so children, I'd have you look up from your drawings and your sheets for just a moment, and I want to encourage you in the way that I think Isaiah would encourage you. Do not trust in yourself. Trust in Christ. Do not grow proud, but give thanks all the time. You see, this thanksgiving, brothers and sisters, is the mark of those who have been redeemed by God's grace. You remember the admonition that Paul gave to the Corinthian church? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, then why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Why do you boast as if you've somehow earned it and have a right to it? Everything that you have, you've received. And as those who have been redeemed by God's grace, oh, well, we understand that the only thing that we deserve in this life is death for sin. That means that everything that we've received over and above death for sin and the wrath of God for eternity is unmerited grace from God. It is his mercy. A good way to remember the difference between mercy and grace might be this way. Mercy is God's withholding from you all of the things that you rightly deserve, death for sin. And God's grace is giving to you everything that you don't deserve. That is everything that isn't death for sin. There's nothing in your life that you have that you have not received from the gracious and the merciful hand of God. Beginning with the warm shower that you took this morning to the hot plate of food to the very breath that fills your lungs that leads you countless times throughout the week to grumble and complain at his providence in your life and yet he has still given you so much more, hasn't he, in Christ having blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is why Thanksgiving marks Christians because we know that there is nothing that we have that we have earned and claimed by right. Everything that we have from the breath in our lungs to the eternal hope of glory comes from a hand of God who has known you, loved you, and chose you before the foundations of the world and sent his son to lay down his life for you so that you would not die and yet live. That is glorious. This is also a reason that giving thanks is a community project. You see, thanksgiving isn't a thank you card for God sealed in an envelope only for God to see. Thanksgiving is an open and a public declaration. It doesn't whisper, it shouts. It says with the psalmist, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. 
Psalm 66, five. Now when we give thanks to God together, we are like the congregation in Psalm 136 that exalts God, proclaims his faithfulness, and confesses that we have nothing apart from him. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. Why does the psalmist keep saying the same thing over and over and over again? It's the same reason I preach the same gospel every week and the same reason we keep singing the same songs every week and that's because you're prone to forget it every week. His steadfast love endures forever. He loves you by way of covenant and has blessed you and it will not break it. And when we allow one another to hear and join one another's thanksgiving to God, whether it's from prayer or singing or the offering of testimony of his grace in our lives, we stir one another's hearts to to thankfulness. And thankfulness spreads like a yawn in the church. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody around you yawns and you can't help it. You can try to resist it all you want and you blow out your neck trying. Somebody else yawns, you're gonna yawn, and the same thing is true for thanksgiving. Just as when one person yawns and you can't resist yawning, so when one humble heart gives thanks to God, another humble heart can't resist doing the same. Of course, the same is also true of grumbling, isn't it? But King David knew about the infectious power of thanksgiving. That's why he writes in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord some of the time, at all times. See also 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks always. His praise, David says, shall continually be on my mouth. Sometimes on my mouth? Oh no, all the time. Anything that I might be tempted to boast in, any moment, of any minute, of any day, of any week, will ultimately be turned to a boasting in God. That his soul he says, makes its boast in the Lord. And then he says, listen to the community project language. Let the humble hear and be glad. David isn't zipping up a thank you card for God and sending it silently. He's going, I'm boasting in God and giving thanks to God because I want you to hear it and I want you to be glad in God. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever you realize that this is a key but often underappreciated ingredient in our discipleship. I wonder if you give every bit as much time talking about evidences of God's grace in your life for which you are thankful as you do all of his bitter providences and your sin. Friends, you and I, when we meet for coffee, when we gather around one another's tables, we need to speak much more often of the steadfast love of God that endures forever. Lest we end up placing on our own heads, impressed with our own accomplishments, and grumbling at all those things withheld from us, a crown of pride. God will not suffer a proud crown. So what are you proud of? What is your crown? Is your boasting in that thing ultimately a boasting in yourself or is it a boasting in Christ? 
Do you take God's grace for granted and use and abuse his gifts for your own self-glory and your own self-gratification? Or are you one who says thank you often? Not just in rote ways, when you thank him for the meal that you're about to eat, but I mean a posture of thanksgiving. Friends, there's not a single person in this room that can't continue to grow in grace in this, including your pastor. I need you to help me. I need to hear you so that my heart will be glad. And you need to hear me so that your heart will be glad. And that together we will exalt his name. Beloved, God alone is our crown. His glory is our boast and his grace is our fuel for worship. This is the soundtrack of the new Jerusalem. And that's exactly what we see in our last two verses this morning, verses five and six. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. As is typically the case with Isaiah, he takes us down as, about as far as we could possibly go to the emotional dregs with all these oracles of judgment, but Isaiah, like Jesus, never leaves us there. Look at the play on words in verse five. We've gone from a crown of pride in verses one and three to a crown of glory. Many commentators believe that verse five is speaking of the glory of the Messiah, and I really don't have any reason to doubt them. But what is abundantly clear in our passage is the contrast between the two crowns. We see the fading crown giving way to the beautiful crown of Jehovah. False worship is giving way to true worship and the city of man is going to be abandoned for Jerusalem and Zion. But I want you to notice something else. It is not the crown of the Lord that will be our greatest joy the Lord is our crown. He is our greatest joy. That means that everything else that we find joy in, everything else that we boast in, must be a boasting in Christ. This is why Paul says on more than one occasion, may it never be that I would boast in anything except Christ and him crucified. You say, whoa, Paul, I see you boasting in things all the time. You even boast in your churches. Seems kind of proud. To which I think Paul would say, yes, but all of that boasting is a secondary boasting that is ultimately a chief boasting in the glory and the grace of God in Christ. Do all of your boasts subordinate itself in that way? Does the banner that hangs over your head, may it be that I would never boast in anything but Christ and him crucified? Oh, friends, I wish that were true of me. Sadly, it's not, but I trust that the Lord in his grace and his own time is making that more true of me as he is with you. But you and I right now, we look at Seattle and we look at Washington. We look at the news cycles. We look at our Facebook feeds and our Twitter feeds and whatever feeds you look at, TikTok, whatever it is. I don't know how to TikTok. And we may very well 
be on the verge of national collapse. Say, well, you're overreacting. We've survived worse than this, perhaps. But remember what I said earlier. No nation endures forever. The United States of America, wonderful experiment based on great ideals that it will never live up to. But while our own nation is a great experiment, friends, listen to me. The church of Jesus Christ is a certainty. So come November, December, January, there's no telling how the elections will go. Our cities may be burning down. 2020 may deal its final death blow of coronavirus, murder hornets, and the fall of Western civilization. But beloved, listen to me. It doesn't matter. All of it is according to the sovereign hand and judgments of our God who does nothing that does not bring him a maximal amount of glory and his glory is always, always, always to our good. We belong to the king. Everything in our nation and around your life can fall apart. But God will have and God will not lose those whose crown is Christ. Verse six, what we see is that when God is our treasure, when we see him as more delightful than all of the world, when we see through the world's deception and its nothingness and our hearts prize Christ above all, that is when a spirit of justice and strength empower us for service to the world. Of course, all of this language that's being used here by Isaiah, we see it elsewhere in Isaiah chapter 11 when it talks about the branch of the Lord coming from Jesse. That is a messianic promise and he says the spirit will rest on Messiah and he will have the spirit of justice and righteousness will flow from him and of course what what Isaiah is saying here the implication is is that those who have that Messiah as their crown his life and his spirit will be their spirit and that which belongs to him becomes theirs and that which emanates from him emanates from them you cannot be in Christ and not be a just person You cannot be in Christ and not be a safe person. I don't mean safe in taking it safe. I mean safe as in totally and utterly, unassailably secure. Because you're in Messiah. So this spirit of justice that Isaiah is talking about in our final verse of the morning, it doesn't come from the halls of academia. And it doesn't come from particular political ideologies. True justice will mark the kingdom of Christ because the spirit of justice rests on our king. We are in him. So kingdoms may rise and fall. Some of you have Hamilton in your mind right now. That's not what I'm saying. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Wealth will be accumulated and wealth will be lost. And as soon as our pride finds its own pedestal, it will fall off again. And so we have to ask, with the late Malcolm Muggeridge, 
Can this really be what life is about, as the media insists? This interminable soap opera going on from century to century, from era to era, whose old discarded sets and props litter the earth. Surely not. Was it to provide a location for so repetitive and ribald a performance that the universe was created and man just came into existence? I can't believe it. If this were all, then the cynics, the hedonists, and the suicides would be right. The most that we can hope for from life is some passing amusement, some gratification of our senses and death. But, in fact, it is not all. As Christians, he says, we know that here we have no continuing city that crowns roll in the dust and every earthly kingdom must sometimes flounder. Whereas, and listen to this, we acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot dethrone, and we are citizens of a city of God they did not build and cannot destroy. Oh, that's so good. Let me say it again. We acknowledge a king that men did not crown. Rather, they killed. And that they cannot dethrone. And we are citizens of a city of God. They did not build. And they cannot destroy. We are, in the words of the writer of the Hebrews, part of a kingdom that will never be shaken. So I wonder, brothers and sisters, who you ever thought, for all of the challenges and trials and tribulations of our own day, that it's a mercy to live in troubled times like these? When the world is falling apart, when we have no clever answers for our needs, political or otherwise, when maybe for the greatest time ever in your own life, the shine is off of the world. Brothers and sisters, that is a mercy from God because if that's true, then we are less likely to be taken in by it. It's more believable now than ever that our only salvation is in God. And it's more true now than ever that all we have is Christ. Let's pray.